Hello and welcome to the Own Your Role podcast. I'm your host, Dean Watt, and I'm your guide to exceptional leadership and dynamic culture in your business. Join me each week as we explore practical tips through fun and fascinating interviews with successful business owners who've mastered the art of leadership. Over the last 20 years as a keynote speaker, author, and high-performing team transformation specialist, I've been fascinated by what it takes to create a great culture and dedicated team members in a business. When leaders truly own their roles and empower their team members to do the same, a great culture is always the result. So whether you're on your couch or in your car, on a treadmill or hiking up a hill, get ready to be inspired and entertained as you learn exactly how to own your role. All right, everybody, welcome to Own Your Role podcast. My name is Dino Watt. I'm your host and excited again for another episode where we get to talk to unique entrepreneurs who are doing some really cool stuff in the world and allow you to see different opportunities and ways that you can think about your business a little differently. On today's podcast, we have Rob Fuller, who's going to talk to us about real estate, but maybe not in the way that you're thinking about. I know that Real estate can either be a hot or cold button topic right now where it comes to what's going on in the world. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit. But the uh, truth of the matter is, is that no matter what, real estate is always an opportunity. There's always an opportunity for real estate in the market. I've been someone who dabbled in real estate a little heavily back in the uh, end of the 2000s, uh, 2004, 5, 6, 7. That's what actually brought me here to my current home and state. And um, it's something that my wife and I still dabble in here and there. So I'm excited to, to pick Rob's brain about what he sees going on in the market and what is unique about their business. Before we get into that, again, thank you for subscribing and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues. We just had an event this weekend, had someone come up to me talking about an episode a few episodes ago how it really affected him and how grateful he was to be able to listen to that podcast. So thank you for sharing it with your friends and colleagues and listening. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you can get notified when we have a next episode, our next episode coming out just like today. With that being said, let's get started with the show. Rob, welcome to the show. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Dino. Hey, Rob. So tell us a little bit. We always like to start off our show with understanding people stories. I believe stories are what connects all of us. We all have them. So let's hear about your journey of how you got to be doing what you do now. With About 15 years ago, 16 years ago, I was finishing up college with the intention to uh, go to med school. So I'd taken all the courses. I, I was preparing for the MCAT. Uh, I graduated. Just before I graduated, my wife and I got married. And um uh, and so we, you know, started in our journey of, of post, post-graduation. I took the MCAT, started interviewing at med schools a little while later. I actually had five interviews lined up. I went to the first one and flew home from it. And, and I said to my wife, you know, hey, I'm not sure this is really what I want to do. I'd always excelled. And that's at, at these biology and chemistry and physics and uh, all these courses that were prereqs for, for med school. And I enjoyed them. Uh, but what I started thinking about, you know, being in an office, uh, you know, 10 hours a day, it didn't really appeal to me. Uh, I've got several family members that are physicians and I did some shadowing with them over the, that time and kind of always been on the fence, but kept going down that path simply because I was good at it in school, right? Um, I had a, a passion for real estate, but I had no exposure to that. I grew up in a military brat. So I didn't know what it even meant to be an investor, that it could be a job, right? Could mm. be a lifestyle. And so I 
when came home from that medic, that first medical school interview and um and my my wife said well i told you so kind of thing right and, oh really generally, wow. yeah she she was she was in it uh you know for the commitment but because uh, she was committed to, to to me and our marriage but it wasn't something where she thought you're yeah you, you've got a passion for it from the beginning she'd kind of said eh, you know sure you know if that's where you want to wow, go that's really great you had somebody so supportive like that because i can hear so many guys or and gals listening to this going like oh man if i would have gone home and told anybody that they would have freaked out after the four years i'd already gone through and all that so that's really yeah. great well and in fairness she hadn't been with me during all that schooling uh, uh you know we we dated in college for whatever a year and, and thing but it wasn't like it was it was like she was waiting for you to become that doctor and yeah, saw yeah. that future. Okay. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, she was super supportive. Um, and so from there, it had to take a job, right? I needed a, needed something to pay the bills still, though. I couldn't just, you know, we couldn't sleep on couches or whatever or whatever. So we, I went and took a job with a pharmaceutical company. Uh, I went to work for one for a year, then another, uh, and did a medical device company for a few years after that. But during that time, I started building, we started investing in real estate. The, the downturn of the market already, you know, 2008, 2009, we started buying homes. I think in 2009, we bought 13 homes from a bank. I think we paid total less than $100,000 for all those houses. Wow. Some perspective. And then, you know, a bunch of them needed re renovations and repairs. Um, I can think of one of them, you know, it's been 15 years, 14 years, whatever, since we bought those 15 years. So it's a little hard to remember all those. We've bought hundreds of homes over the years, but we paid like 2,500 bucks for another one of them. We paid like, I don't know, like 10, less than 10 and put like maybe 25 or 30 into it, but ended up being able to sell it for 75 a couple of years later. Sure. We rented them. A lot of those we rented. We did that for years where we bought and renovated homes. During that time when there was a lot of distressed housing, um, we had some good people that we partnered with to help us find good assets. And and so clear up until about 2015, we were buying distressed assets, renovating them and reselling them. Uh, a bunch of them we kept, but the resale was either institutional or individual, individual groups, individual people. I mean, um, and so kind of one or the other generally, but um, we kind of kept building on what we were doing all the while I had my day job until I finally, I, I finally quit it around that time. Um, and went full time into real estate, and I and I, I put in a lot of hours, like many people do. You know, I I work for a few hours before my job, and then I work for a few hours after my job, and and um, you know, I did I had a lot of time on the road, so I could do phone calls to vendors and contractors and things like that. So I had, that way I had some benefits that other people may not have um, because they they may have a job that requires their full attention during that time. But sure. Um, Anyway, I ended up uh, quitting quitting my job and and going out in about uh, I think 2015. Basically, made that decision to do it, and and so uh, or my wife and I did. Definitely wasn't by myself, but so um, then we started buying. We distressed housing became scarcer, so we started buying lots at first, and oh. those were, you know, building lots are challenging because you're starting to compete with builders and and other sure. groups. So we, that only lasted a short time. We, we then we started buying land. Um, and the reason I started doing that is I saw that, you know, the price of a, a lot versus the price of land, there was a substantial difference. And obviously there's a, a lot of money that has to go into that process, but um, 
we start buying land or getting it under contract. And we, we now, I mean, this is basically the same model we follow. We'll get land under contract and then we'll annex it, rezone it, and title it. And in that process, and sometimes it takes years, I've got a project right now we're three and a half years into having broken ground on it, but wow. we annexed it into the city, we rezoned it, we entitled it, we got, you know, all of the utilities prepped to, uh, from the city, like to stubbed out to our, to our project. So we're getting ready to go in, in that particular project within the next couple of months and put in hopefully 800 lots. And that's going to take, you know, a better part of a year and a half. And then we'll sell those to public builders. Some of those we still try to keep our kind of, I would say our bread and butter is really a build to rent product where we build all the way through completed house for the intention of keeping as a rental. Oh, wow. So that's, that's really the biggest thing. When we, when we build the lots and sell them, that helps just take our cost basis down. So. Got it. So what, why did you fall in love with this idea of real estate? What was it about real estate that, that gravitated you towards that of all the things you could have done? You know, I, I've always been interested in real estate. I don't have like some story where it's like this thing happened and it was this landmark event. We were being evicted. And yeah. I don't have anything like that. Never like, going to do this again. And okay. For, for me and, and some people this, I've talked to so many real estate entrepreneurs that they're like, my target is this dollar amount. And I don't have a target like that. Which Some people think that's crazy because they're like, you have to have these ambitious goals. And it's like, yeah, well, that's true. My goal is actually spend less time doing real estate because I love it so much that it doesn't feel like work for me at all. You don't want it to turn into work. Yeah. It has. Well, but also that I know that sometimes I, I do too much of it. Right. So yeah. it's the, the battle of trying to back off it a little bit. I'm, we've got more than enough real estate and, and projects that we're working on that um, I don't need more. Right. I don't need more in order to, to reach some goal. It's just like, hey, that looks like that would be really fun or that would be a, a neat project to be a part of. Yeah, let's see what we can do. So that's sometimes what I, I do. And so kind of put a moratorium on buying projects about a year ago or putting pro projects under contract. But I still closed on several projects we had under contract for two and two and a half, three years in some cases in that meantime. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, so I don't have a landmark event, but the hunt for me when I'm looking for houses to buy back in, you know, 2008, 2009. And even before that, I had an, in, I had an interest in it. I did like the idea of the kind of having freedom to do what you wanted to do essentially. Um, but real estate, as I, I got into it, just had an attraction for me. And, um, and so I, as I got more into it, for me, it's, it's the hunt to find the project. It's the, the satisfaction of completing something that you can see a difference in from beginning to end. And even the, the awe of that process, right? Like, oh, man, we yeah. stripped this house down. We built it back up. It looks completely different or ground up construction. We, we bought this. It had trees on it, you know, several, you know, 100 acres or whatever. And, and we, you know, cleared what we needed to, built the neighborhood, and here it is kind of thing. And all of that is just, it has a, there's a fulfillment to it. You know, it's like I, there's a project that finished in there. Which typically happens in like, according to the TV shows on the HGTV in like a 45 minute time period, right? Generally. A yeah. Couple of weeks. It's, about, it's about the time frame. <laughs> so let's, let's dive into what everyone's probably thinking right now around the market, the real estate market, what's going on. Cause you got in at a time where things started getting a little shaky. Right. And a lot of people talk about have a lot of people who listen to this that started their business back then. And it was scary just to own a business, let alone real estate. Then you had this flush time that happened over the last couple of years or 
prior to the pandemic. And then all of a sudden pandemic and now with the economy, with interest rates. So let's talk about your take and what's going on in the market. What do you see happening and, and what people should really be aware of that's both the good and the bad. Yeah. Well, I mean, how far back do we want to go? We want to go back to, I mean, when I entered really, it was kind of market had already kind of taken the dump and it was yeah. still declining, but it was clear that, you know, that had happened and it was going to continue to happen. So some of that was me just being able to pick up distressed houses. Didn't buy yeah. it unless it was at the time I bought things that were just kind of bottom of the market. But I remember even in 2011 and 2012 homes that were, you know, five, six, seven years old, you know, four sided brick houses, you know, four bed, two and a half baths, picking them up for 50 to $60,000 that were relatively brand new. Um, and, you know, that's what I said as the distressed market kind of went away in that, you know, 2014, 20 through 2016, I say went away, but home prices just went, they went up on distressed assets. There were far fewer of them. So the ones that were around were going for more and more money. We had a lot of institutional players that came in that were, picking up homes and, and they had their money at five, six, seven percent. So they were getting them, you know, their capital. I mean, we Blackstone had invitation homes and there's a bunch of those groups that were in there buying. There some of them are still buying. Yeah. Uh, and so because their capital was cheap, they could afford to pay, you know, ten thousand over asking and, and outbid everybody. Sure. Um, and so uh that's why we ended up we moved markets at the time when we started, we were kind of in Atlanta. Um, and then we moved out of Atlanta to get away from some of those institutional buyers that were buying. Um, you know, if, if I had all the money that they had, I would have stayed in Atlanta just because it was a, that market is a, as a primary market, primary markets tend to have more liquidity faster. Mm -hmm. Right. So we, we had moved into some markets that were, you know, secondary or tertiary markets and they just have less liquidity. And, and um, as far as your ability to move homes and if you're selling them and, and the appreciation tends to be lower and slower, um, so there's, there are advantages to being in primary markets. If you're looking for cash flow going into it and you're willing to hold assets for a really long time, there's no risk. I would say no risk. I mean, there's a low risk at, at buying homes in markets that are, as long as you've got a good market in those, but you know, secondary and tertiary markets. But at the time I'm, I'm like specifically talking about like Huntsville, Alabama, right. Which is highest concentration of PhDs in the country at the time it was. I, I think it's still probably there because you've got Red's Rocket City. NASA has a big thing. Redstone Arsenal. So we were buying there and we'd moved out of Atlanta. But even at the time, most of the institutional groups, they weren't going there because it was a small town. Right now, most of them have presence there. So that's just to give an, a, a concrete example. So you would buy all over the all over the place, not just where you lived. Yeah. I, in fact, I lived in California. Oh, and, and it was, it was, I, I didn't really feel like I could afford to buy in California because even, even at the crash, it was home prices were sure. free. I mean, sure. we would buy houses between 30 and 40 or 30 and $50,000 in, you know, clear up until 2015, 2016. And that's why I say those were drying up. Those ones that were really, really inexpensive. And yeah, we had to go in there and, um, and do a fair amount of work, but that's how we got our, our value, right? That's how sure. we created value. You know, if we bought a home that just needed paint. Yeah. You could do that in 2009, but by 2015, you definitely couldn't do that. And right. one of my mentors has done over 3000 units that they've done. And his kind of tagline is if it smells like cat urine or pet, pet urine, that's my house. Loves it. <laughs> yeah. Because you just know the competition is going to be low. People, yeah. especially retail buyers, are going to walk in there and think, well, what other problems are there? Right. A guy like that and us, we're equipped to handle that, whereas right. the average buyer 
may not calculate that I need to be offering less money on this house simply because of the potential problems that are there. And so a lot of times they just won't get into them at all. But right. I mean, as you continue to kind of move through the market and the economy is, is, you know, 2018, you know, I attend a lot of conferences. I speak at some and, and, you know, we, there's market study market groups that do studies and provide data. I mean, Zonda and Myers and John Burns and first American. And there's a lot of groups out there that provide data, but many of them were saying by, you know, 2017, 2018, we're going to see another kind of downturn reset, not as deep as 2006, 2007, 2008, but it's going to be there. I actually ended up selling most of our, our, well, I think we ended up selling all of our rentals at that time that were kind of scattered site. And we used some of those funds to pick up land over the next few years, but, um, you know, it turns out going into the COVID, which nobody really expected to, to hit, um, that obviously there was a big dip and you go at first you go really glad I sold those. Right. And then interest rates dropping and the market going like a rocket. Yeah. Go, Dang it. You know, so one point kept going, those. the next year you're going, man, I, I really missed that opportunity. And that's, yeah. I mean, that's just par for the course with, of course with real estate. You don't really know. Nobody has that crystal ball. Everybody wants to be predictors of what the next great thing is. And, and after it happens, people always say, see, I told you about it. Yeah. Yeah. I did I this whole time. That's yeah. what I was talking about. Uh-huh. Yeah. Nobody was listening to me. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is even today's market. I mean, if we talk about that, it's, you know, the yeah, it's going, going up. It's challenging. Like we borrow a fair amount of money and, and construction debt. Construction lenders now are saying, you know, we don't have construction debt to extend because the borrowers that we had lent money to aren't paying us off because the permanent financing isn't, isn't available for them. Right. And I'm in, I'm in residential. So office is like a whole nother mess, right. And other commercials, it's a, you know, hospitality and other things are, are starting to see some significant headway or head uh, headwinds uh, as if they haven't already, but they, they have, but it's going to it just continues to get worse. And um, in residential where there's a lack of supply and a huge demand still, still very challenging and, and rates are, have gone up. Buyers are harder to come by. Now I do a rental product. It's, it's a thousand dollars a month cheaper for people to rent from me than it is for them to buy their own home. Wow. So in a lot of ways that drives people to our rental product, Sure. Um, but we still have to finance our rental product. Yeah. I was going to so say it's uh, because of the type of assets that we have, it's, it's, it's cheaper than generally it's cheaper than somebody going to get a, their primary mortgage and, and we're willing to pay down uh, you know, the, the interest rates and, and it, they're traded more on cap rate than they are comps in a neighborhood sure. in the same way a home buyer might be buying uh, a home for their, their own living. So. so right now where people are looking at, there is this, like you said, there's still a uh, high demand, but not a lot of product out there across the country. What, uh, where are you finding your, your greatest assets or your kind of niche that you're finding right now? So, and I, a lot of the deals that we buy, we buy early, like we get under contract early, meaning that well before, um, they're, they're buildable lots. Right. So I can give you an example. One that we did that we're working on in, in Huntsville, Alabama. I mean, we, we started the process of, of rezoning and entitlement, I don't know, two and a half three years ago. Right. Wow. We started building homes last month. Right. And so, so, so that money that you're using to do that, the investors for that, they're just kind of, it's, it's basically long-term play. Yeah. But I mean, a lot of times we'll get land under contract. We didn't close on it until last year. 
So we might, the, the seller might have to, part of our agreement, a lot of times we'll have them carry the land for a year, year and a half. I had a, a, some land that we closed in the summer of 2022. So it's been about um, 15 months since we closed, closed on it, but um, they'd been already holding it for two years at that point by the time we closed on it. Wow. wow. And that's just, well, sometimes we'll structure option payments. So they're getting something or we'll structure, a, you know, a significant earnest money deposit, but that way you don't have to come up with capital early. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times there's a way for me to get earnest money completely back for a year or a year and a half. If we say, look, I'm not even sure if the city's going to let me do what I want to do, which is build homes there. So, but if they won't let me do it, they're not going to let that guy do it or that guy do it. So you might as well sure. take a, a gamble on me. We'll work on it. We'll pay for the engineering. So you don't have to, you know, and we'll work on getting it through. And, and generally we have an idea, a pretty good idea. So when we go sit down with, the city, the planners, the county planners, whoever it is, and say, hey, here's what we want to do. Would you be on board with that? We get a, a pretty quick temperature check with them, and they say, yeah, that's in the master plan. That's exactly what we want to have done. Nice. Then we can move forward and and move to, towards whatever zoning they want, as long as it's what we want as well. If it's not what we want, and they're not willing to kind of work with us, then we just we get out and get our earnest money back. But a lot of times so, that land for the, the money that we use for the land is our money. Generally, it is. Um, and so we're not even bringing investors in that early. So one of the things that I talk a lot about is the, the power of relationships. And it sounds like you got to be really good about building the relationship with not only the landowner, but the, so we get projects brought to us, you know, all over people say, I've got this awesome deal in, in, in Philly or in, you know, upstate New York or in New Mexico. And those aren't markets that we're in or that we're looking to have a presence in, then we, we won't entertain that. So we already have relationships in the markets that we're in. And those, those have been, you know, over years and years. Um, but if somebody's looking to get into a market or they, or they are in a market, they want to start doing what I'm doing. A lot of that is a matter of going in and saying, talking with people, most of the city planners, I mean, a lot of them are overworked, but they're pretty amenable to just having a conversation. I wouldn't necessarily uh, have some pointed questions and say, hey, this is what I want to do. But a lot of them are really pretty professional as well. And if you talk with them and say, hey, this is what I want to do, what's the feeling from the, what's the sentiment from the city? Will I get, will I get buy-in from that? And you can do what's called in many cities and counties that like early planning meetings, early assistance meetings where they have a conversation with you. They'll bring in, you know, the stormwater guy or the city engineer or whoever it is along with the planner. And you can have a, a 15 to 30 minute discussion about where the plans are. I prefer, I prefer to work with guys who are local as far as consultants to, to do um, the legal work, the engineering and other things. Um, and so when I, when I do that, they've already, they already have established relationships and I'm pretty good about uh, being a judge of character, I would say, generally. I mean, obviously, everybody makes mistakes here and there. But one of the things I, you know, do I get along with these people? Do I think they're going to get along with, that they get along with the city and how they're interacting? And, and I mean, I go with the planners to those meetings as well to see how they interact with the, the, planner, uh, the planners from the, the city. Um, the city planners and then our land planners that we hire, right? I see how they interact. Um, and so some of that is, and then also in just selecting, some of it is, okay, I've got a realtor who sells land. Who do they know that does land planning? And I meet three or four of those guys. Sometimes it's taking them to lunch. Um, 
Sometimes it's meeting them on site and getting their vision for what what it would what it would be that they would like to accomplish or what they could accomplish for us. Um, the same thing with kind of attorneys and, and people. A lot of those I'll go with referrals from different people. Sometimes I can go into the city and say, "Hey, who who's the guy?" Now they can't say who do you like the best. You can ask them, sure. that kind of, but they won't generally say, "Oh, well, I like so and so the best." Right. But what you can ask them is, "Hey, who's been really successful about getting plans through here recently?" Right. Or or which planner or which attorney do you have the least or or has because they don't want to give something that has opinion generally. Uh, but you can ask them a question like, well, who do you have to have the fewest revisions with? Right. Right. And and those are all valuable questions because it tells you, well, they're doing it right the first time. Yeah, they got their stuff together. Yeah, I mean, nobody gets, I mean, generally people don't get right. things from the first revision. It's it's right. submitting usually by the third time because they'll, you submit it, they revise it, give you feedback, they submit it again, and you might get a few comments the second time, that third time, hopefully you're getting it through the city generally. So let's talk about some of those challenges when you kind of knew, yeah, this isn't right for us. And, and I mean, I think we learned so much from our mistakes or from those you know, warnings in our head that come off. Can you come up with an idea or an experience or a story of when that you thought something looked good, you're moving towards it. And then it was like, yeah, no, this is not going to be good. And you're very glad you didn't do it. Yeah. So I was, I'm just, the one that first comes to my head, I drove by yesterday uh, in Colorado Springs. We do quite a bit of work out there and I had some investors in town with me and we were driving, looking at some of the projects we do have going there. And there's one project that honestly, it'd still be great. Um, the problem is, and we even did a market study for it, which supports it. The problem is the city requirements, what they want to have done, mm. uh, or city. It's not really city. I think that one's in the county, or it's wherever it is. The municipality that was that wanted us had some specific things they wanted us to accomplish that were too expensive, right? And you figure in the number of homes that you're going to build and things like that. It just didn't make sense. Now. I shouldn't just blame it. I, I'm not meaning to cast blame on just the municipality spoke with, because it also had to do with the seller's price of what they uh, thought it should be valued at. Right. They wanted $5 million and it's at a big intersection. Right. Um, and there's a whole undeveloped side of it. It's, it's over on one side. And so it's a great opportunity to build residential units to have some commercial. The seller thinks it's worth one price and the city says, well, we need to have X, Y, and Z done. They wanted, um, some big roundabouts, so buses, school buses could go in and around, and they just things that I mean that's not crazy, but some of the other things that were associated with it, and then the seller saying, well, it's got to be this price. Well, all of those things combined make it so it doesn't work. Right, right. It's too high. Yeah. Um, and, and, and for a while, you could get um, municipal bonds, and and you still can, but those are, those allow you to have um, uh, property taxes that go or you know millage rate. So a payment that goes on people's property taxes to support the new development. And that's something that can, can be sold still, but it's more expensive now. But some, if, especially if the, the people are in like a, hey, this is what my land is worth. And I already know you can do this, 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 and this. It's like, well, yeah, you know, I can get a bond, but I have to get that approved. It has to be voted on. And the rates are so high now that I'm not going to be able to get a bond and the proceeds are going to be lower. So it's not going to provide me the money you think it is. People always have a concept that developers are making, you know, tons of money. We can, we can generally do very well. I'm not complaining, but sure. it's a long time, right? I mean, I mentioned that one that I've had in a contractor that we put on a contract originally two and a half years ago, yeah. three years ago at this point that we haven't even broken ground on. And so we have money into it and a lot of money. Um, and 
then when we break ground and we'll be spending more money, tens of millions of dollars, right? That's sure. what we're talking about. Lots sure, and lots yeah. of money. So you're, you're banked at your, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that go into it. And I was telling these investors I mentioned earlier um, yesterday, you know, the most expensive home you build is the very first unit because, wow. because you've got to have you all, all the stuff that goes along with it. Sure. Yeah, and not just that house with all of the houses, right? Because yeah. you, you don't go in and just put the electric in or the water in for one house. You go and put it in for, you know, there's 200 pads in there. You're putting it in for 200 pads yeah. to sell the first house, the first yeah. lot, whatever it is. And so you're literally spending many cases, you know, $10 million or more uh, just to get in the land and the development uh, work as far as the, the, the grading, the streets, the electric, the water, the sewer, the, the stormwater, all those things have to be in for the entire community before you build the first house wow that's true yeah. yeah so let's talk about your business model when it comes to investments because you have roi properties which is an investment is it a holding company like what what, what would you call so it roi property group is our management company management company. where we i've got my staff here they're all payrolls out of that um and then we've got um individual and, and real estate is a little bit different than somebody who's running another kind of business, but we have individual entities for every single one of our projects. And those, we do have a, a fund that we raise. And so we have, uh, we, we raise like a construction debt, you know, so um, we'll raise from investors and, you know, pay them, you know, 1% per month and they get paid. Every well, month kind of thing. But you were, you were talking about earlier, some of these big companies like BlackRock and stuff, they're investing obviously. So talk a little bit more about your typical type of investor who would join you in a project like this or be part of that holding company? So interestingly, I don't have any of those institutional groups as partners. I've talked to some of those big guys in the past and oftentimes they basically, and this is my experience and with, from people who have worked with those groups, they end up owning you, right? They sure. tell that you how, sense. Yeah. yeah. They tell you what you want to do and how you want to do it and all of these things. And even when my, my, my uh, friend who I mentioned, he's a mentor, who went to Yale Law, right? He's a very smart guy. He's done real estate for the last 20 years. Before that, he practiced securities law. And he ended up in a relationship with one of these institutional groups that he wanted un he unwound it within a couple of years because it was so – he ran his business, ran flipped thousands of homes, and these guys in, in just a short time made him less profitable – and increased his workload substantially. He had to right. hire specific people just to do compliance. They were flying people in to do, you know, their compliance and he's sticking them up, but you know, all these additional costs. So those guys are not my typical bread and butter investors. My typical guys are private investors who come in and whether it's they're investing from their, their self-directed IRAs or they've got cash from the business sale or uh, capital because they're, you know, they have a good income earner, but you know, they don't, necessarily want to be invested in the stock market where they've lost money or um, they like all the idea of doing some an alternative asset. So there's a lot of things, but our typical investor is, you know, a hundred to $500,000. Um, we do have a number of people that are in the uh, millions, but uh, generally we, we have people who are smaller and we will, we have a fund that we put together and that's where we'll go and build the homes with those, those, that money. And then when those homes are built, we will roll it to institutional debt, bank debt or, or debt fund debt, because it's cheaper. 
Um, but yeah, our, our typical investors will bring in after we've done the horizontal development work generally, and we're just doing the vertical work with, with their funds. So are they, they're investing a long term, but for the, uh, outcome will be an ROI on their money or they roll it over into your next project. Yeah. I mean, most of it, we just treat like debt bank debt. Like, like oh. a, a fund. So it's literally, we'll pay them their interest rate every single month. Yeah. And if they're in the fund, you know, two year duration or whatever, they'll, they'll keep it in there for two years. And we might use the funds on three different projects during that time, homes and different projects as we're building those vertically. Um, and so generally speaking, we don't, we don't have one person on a house, although sometimes we will do sure. that. If people are bringing, especially if they're bringing in enough money to sure. cover yeah. a, or multiple houses, then we'll do that. So wait, so you said they'll get paid on a monthly basis. They're not waiting till the end of the project or anything like that. That's that's interesting. How did that model come about? Well, I, I, when I say it's basically our own internal debt fund, we borrowed money from institutional groups. And what ends up happening is you borrow it from them. By the way, they're borrowing your money, investors. Yeah. Sure. Um, and they're paying you 6%. Right. right? Cause they'll, they'll say, Oh, we're making 9%, but then we charge you management fees and, you know, uh, on your money. And, and then, you know, we split the profits and all these things. So those institutional groups are making away with most of the profit really using your money and they pay you a smaller amount. So what we started doing is we just went directly to people who had been referred to us and, and said, Hey, you want to lend to us. And so we started uh, over time, you know, building up that pool to the point that, you know, we put it in the fund and, and now we've got funds as we're doing, I mean, we've, we've probably got $550 million of building projects over the next few years, right? So wow. that'll be a revolving kind of, we'll build a home, rent it, then refinance it to cheaper debt, right? And those construction funds will go back in and continue rolling that way. So, so let's dive in a little deeper to your ideal uh, partner with this investor when it comes to people who are looking to do this, right? We obviously have a lot of, Doctors who are listening to this, we have a lot of people who, like you said, probably aren't fully invested in anything other than the stock market. Yeah. So let's talk about the typical people who are coming to you to be a part of this. Yeah, I've got a, I mean, as an example, I've got a dentist group that I work with that, that caters to, to coaching dentists and they refer me to people. I've got a guy who does a lot of um life insurance policies and he'll refer a lot of people to me and that's just kind of his general everyday person that, that, that from all walks of life yeah uh, and uh you know i've got a number of people who refer to me and then we've um we've, we've got to just because they want their 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 clientele to have some options right yeah um, they teach them how to make money with their money but they don't always they, they then give them four or five different options of, hey you could make money with your money by going with this group or this group and i might be one of those groups so um so our our kind of ideal investor is is you know an average person who has some capital you know i generally in that type of thing i don't generally have guys who have years of real estate experience unless they're yeah. ready to, unless they're ready to be passive because most real estate guys are, are saying oh well, i've got my next deal that's right that most real estate guys have in in common is that we're like what's my next deal what's my next project so our average investor is i mean there's you, somebody who wants a passive investment where they're making yeah. money off of their money it's secured by their real estate and yeah, yeah. okay that, that makes a lot of sense um what do you see? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I mean, we got to ask you, what do you, what do you see happening in the future? What's going on? 
Yeah, that's, that's a tricky, challenging question. I mean, part of the reason is because on the one hand, you, you say we've got a political, uh, some, some elections coming up, right? Yeah. So you've got one camp that's saying, no, with the elections, we, we think there's going to be some rates drop in order to kind of, the Democrats need to get that down a little bit so they can get the um, kind of more of the perception of, of hey, sure. we're, we're fighting this, for, we're, for the, we're for you. Um, and and then, um, you know, there's the camp that says, you know, it's going to be a bloodbath. <laughs> and I, as a real estate guy, what it's I've learned that I can't predict it. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish that I could. Um, I've got my opinions, and I, I I personally tend to think that it's going to get better next year because of the election. But I know some groups that very staunch, like it's it's going to be a bloodbath. And I think, I mean, we're starting to see, I used to live in Napa, California, which is like an hour and 20 minutes away from San Francisco. Of course, it can be much longer depending on traffic, but sure, you go into San Francisco and, you know, the Hilton management group that, that managed the Hilton that there's there gave it back to the bank. Right. right. And um, Nordstrom's out. And, and and a lot of that has to do with the, the crime issues where, you know, basically we're not prosecuting anybody below X dollars. And, right. Uh, and then, but you know, we're not going to get into the, the too much of that, but there's, because of that, you've got a ton of vacancy, right? Sure. And so in, in San Francisco specifically and in other cities as well, but I'm, I'm looking at that one specifically in a case, but, you know, those buildings are not going to get the renewed bank debt that they need because they're, they don't have the rents to, yeah. Even even at the market cap rates, they don't have enough rent to justify loans. So either people have to bring in way more equity, or they have to sell, you know, turn it back to the bank, and the bank's going to sell it, or they have to sell it at a loss of their equity. Just, there's options, but um, you know, I, I look at there's that's not every market though. Those are big markets, right? And there are big markets that are going to be really impacted. Um, but one of the things that prior to the last recession, if you look at it, most recessions don't affect every market in the country equally. Right. You have right. recessions that happen in the 80s or the 70s or, or the 90s in certain parts of the country where other parts of the country still uh, appreciated double digits. Sure. Right? And that tends to be what we've seen historically, other than the most other, other than the, the Great Recession. You tended to see kind of it impacting different markets differently. And I mean, I think of, uh, you know, you, you say a town that's going to be hit by by these big office problems you you think of san i think of san francisco yeah because they there's so much vacancy there um i was just in new york for a fall break for my kids right and and new york's very busy right now i don't know how much vacancy there is right um and again i'm not in that office space and, and retail space there seemed like there was a lot less vacancy than when i go to san francisco which I'll sure be there next week but um or two weeks from now, but they, there's a, it's, it's different. So every market's different, even in big cities. I don't have, I mean, everybody wants to say, what do you think? And, and they want to be right. And unfortunately I just learned that I, I'm not probably, I, I'm not well, going to say it's going to be right. Well, let me, let me praise it this way then. So I am, I'm Joe listener and I'm thinking, Hey, yeah, I've got, some, I want to put some capital someplace to where it's actually growing better than the stock market, whatever. Um, why is now a good time to yeah. get into this space? And that kind of, that was kind of where I wanted to bridge is like, how do we mitigate the risk? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so how we mitigate the risk is 
I think of Bradley Ridge, which is one of our projects I've mentioned it a couple times, but not by name. We've, we've owned that for so long. We've annexed it, rezoned it, entitled it. The value of that land has gone up by three times, right? Wow. Because it's because of how much work we've been able to do. And, you know, taking something that where cattle is grazing and turning it into something where you can build a, a, a home. Yeah. It's that process. Um, and, and also in that time frame, the city in that particular city has grown towards it and is now engulfing that area. And so now it's not 10 minutes from town, it's two minutes from town. Wow. And so those types of things make a difference in just buying in the right spot. So how, one of the ways we mitigate risk is by buying assets early enough and then doing a lot of that back work that we're increasing the value that even if in that community, for instance, if we, the market dropped by 50, 50% in that market, which I don't believe it will because there's so much job growth, so many like microchips and there's five government, like five government bases there, NORAD and the Air Force Academy. And anyway, there's so much stuff in Colorado Springs. And, and so um, I don't believe those, those particular ones are going to go down, but um Anyway, so we mitigate the risk by by getting in the right markets where there's going to continue to be growth, and that's why, for instance, lending to me would be in, in that particular case would be solid because we know that we have that. And as far as the takeout goes, um, there are still people lending, right? I'm having to pay more than I used to, but when you look at the fact that it doesn't make sense for the people I used to sell to because. I want to make a profit when I sell it, right? right. I can say, oh, my, I wanted to sell it and I wanted to make X, you know, X cap rate or whatever. But now I can refinance it and still hold on to it. And maybe I don't make the millions of dollars at, at sale, but over the next five to 10 years, we make money in rents and all of those things. So it sure. still finances out well for me. It's it just that we don't have the big gains from selling it. And that's one right. of the differences. That's good. That that idea yeah, makes a lot of sense. And mitigating that, and like you said, as you're doing all this work over these years with not a lot of debt into it, you know, from investors or whatever, you're building the value of that land. And so it sounds like your investors are coming in after the value's already been built. And so we've got a good idea of what that's going to look like when we're done with it. Wow, yeah. that's that's great. Well, that sounds very exciting. I I how can people reach out to you and find out a little bit more about Iowa ROI property groups or any of the education you give? So, um, I mean, honestly, I don't know if you're if I'm going to end up with a million people texting emailing me that that'd be uh, I guess that's a, a like a website or a contact email. Yeah. Or, yeah, I would say if you go to ROIpropertygroup.com, that's just that's our website. Actually, the cool thing about it, at least I think it's neat. We every month we update the the drone footage. We do drone footage on each of our projects each month. Oh, cool! Um, I have project managers on site. I don't always make it to every single project every month, um, especially the ones that are further away. I have partners on a couple of these, and they are at those projects every day, right? Yeah. So, like for instance, the ones I have in uh, Gainesville, that partner is there in Gainesville. He's a build third generation builder. He's been doing it for years. He built for institutional groups. He found a parcel. We'd done some other work together. He said, hey, I've got this deal that I found. It's going to be great. We did market studies. We did our own research and analysis, and we like it. So we decided to, to, to buy it and build it. You know, We put it in a contract uh, two years ago, basically, and closed on it about four or five months ago, mobilized, started clearing trees, all that. But um, so... Because of that, we do the drone footage. 
and and that drone footage then I our investors get a chance to see where we're at every sure, month. You can see the progress of the property. Yeah, which yeah. which they love because they they can see okay, there's stuff sure. happening. Um, and because sometimes you go see a site afterwards, there's a bunch of pipes in the ground, millions of dollars worth of metal yeah. and electric, and, and they have no concept for what it what actually went into it. So they can go back, and you can actually click back on our, my website every single month and see the progress. Yeah, the progress these. of that. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. great. So, right. um, so that, they go to that's... the website, or they can they can actually email me, which is rob at roipropertygroup.com. And... Uh, that's pretty simple. Rob at ROI. Rob at ROIproperty.com. Properties. Property, property group. Yeah. Property, property group. group. No, okay. no S on the end, but it's ROI Property Group. Yep. ROI Property Group. Great. Well, man, Rob, thank you so much for sharing your unique business with us. Uh, we always love to hear uh, what is possible out there. And hopefully it inspired a few people to think a little outside the box in their own business and maybe what they can do to in these times of growing businesses or trying to get more capital in your own life. Uh, and your own investments, this might be an option for you. So that that's great. Thank you for sharing that with us. At the end of every one of our episodes, we end with four questions I ask everybody. Are you willing to play? Absolutely. All right. What is your highest and greatest responsibility on the earth? On the earth? Well, that in your life. Are your you earth. That's what I wasn't sure. If you mean like within my business or... Sorry, I got my degree in philosophy. Sure. This is, that's part of the challenge I have. I very, yeah. want to qualify everything. So with within on the earth, I would say um, husband and father, right? Okay. To be to be good at them. Teach my kids to be human, good human beings, right? Because nobody else is going to teach them to do that. Um, or we can't rely on other people to do that. Within my business... Uh, I would say taking care of my investors and I do that by making sure that our projects are going well and you know, that their needs are being met and that we're, we're being uh, clear, you know, on, on expectations and where, where we're at with things. Um, you know, nice. We have, we've had some delays on some projects. So we've had, you know, six it's months of transparent with our projects. Yeah. 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 And, and that happens because banks aren't financing the way they were, you know, yeah. two years ago or five years ago, even even a normal time frame. Sure. Uh, five years ago, we're not getting financing like that. It's just they're taking longer. And yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. Uh, what do you want as the ultimate outcome for your life? The ultimate outcome for my life. What do I want? Um, I, I would say. I, I, I kind of want to bifurcate each one of these answers, like outside of business and then with inside of our business, and they, they, they do tie together. But um, and I, I think the out, outcome is the same with with my family: is that my kids will be maybe I kind of answer that is that they'll be good human beings, mm-hmm. treat people well, uh, look to help people, um, and then within the within our business is provide housing for people that they can be proud of being in that I can be proud of being a part of creating. Um, yeah. So that's what I'd say for my awesome. Business. What do you consider true leadership to be or look like? Mm. Good. Yeah. Okay. Lastly, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you feel about it, uh, there will be a day where it will be your last day on the earth mm. between now and dead. Whenever that is, hopefully not for a long time. What experience do you hope or want to have? 
experience do I want to have or hope to have? It's not like a, oh, it's not like a uh, make a wish foundation kind of thing. You're saying like, just whatever. Yeah. I've got a variety of answers. Yeah. Well, I have a, a six year old up to 14 year old. Um, so they're still they're still young, but part of that you I think in seeing that you want to kind of see where they're at, and you hope that they're that all the effort you put in that that was successful. But I think from an experience perspective, I would see I'd like to say that one of the things that I would like to achieve in my life is to make a difference in a, in a meaningful way through housing. In helping people who don't have the ability to get that housing themselves, and that sounds. Let me give some back color to that. Um, I remember so like two falls ago. I don't know. It's, Haiti had the earthquake, mm-hmm. and then they had the tropical storm. Yeah. And when that happened, I was reading in the journal, the Wall Street Journal, at the time where literally people were going onto soccer fields with sticks and sheets mm-hmm. because. They didn't want to be in their home because they were afraid of coming down during. Sure. And then thousands of people had lost their homes. And, you know, I don't even know how many people died, far too many. But I just thought of, of the housing world that I'm involved in. The earthquake was was strong and the tsunami is, you know, a force to be reckoned with. But not tsunami, the, uh, the tropical storm. But we have the ability in the United States to build homes that are capable of withstanding that and yet um the people in these other countries in the world they, they don't have that ability so i would like to when i say meaningful provide a place for people to do that so i was i, I was an i was an eagle scout my eagle scout project specifically was um building homes for homeless veterans down oh, nice. in Tucson, arizona and there were some contingencies like they had to you know further their education couldn't drink or do drugs while they were there um, while they're getting schooling and getting a job to get back on their feet. And, and for me, it was kind of, um, you're probably looking for a short answer. And I'm thinking these are supposed to be off the top of your head. Day. This is, this is more deep thinking than anybody's ever done in these four answers, but that's okay. If yeah, I apologize. So that would probably be it. I could, I could make a difference in helping people get housing. So if you were to cut that all the way down and so my experience would be, <laughs> that's I would like to make a meaningful difference to people that to help them get housing in a way that, that allows awesome. them to get get a, get further ahead in their own lives. Love it. I love it. That's great. That's really awesome. It was such a, a, a worthy goal and uh, meaningful as well. Yeah. Well, Rob, it's been a pleasure talking with you and getting to know you and all about your business and who you are as a person. Thank you for sharing the time with us. Okay. I appreciate you having me on, Nino. Thanks so much. Everyone, again, thank you for joining us with the Own Your Role podcast. And please reach out to Rob if you have any questions, even if you just want to find out a little bit more about his knowledge, his experience. You obviously have somebody in front of you who has that experience that can help you even answer the right questions when you're looking to see what you can do with your own investments in your life. We'll see you all on the next episode, everybody. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Own Your Role podcast. Make sure you hit that subscribe button so you're alerted for every new episode we release. And don't forget to write us a review and let us know how we're doing. 
You can also follow me on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, all the social medias. Just search at Dino Watt. And if you'd like me to come and help your team or audience learn to own their role in person, make sure you go to DinoWatt.com for more details. I'll see you on the next episode.